A recent report from Science News has shown that exposure to excess screen time could potentially lead to a lack in cognitive development. However, exposure to digital media technologies is nearly unavoidable in day-to-day -day life and can have immense benefits in formal and informal classroom settings. This week on Noon Edition, our expert panel will discuss the impact of digital technology on education and cognitive development and what can be done to ensure that students are getting the most out of new digital educational media. Join us after this the hour's news. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, the GigaCity company, a philanthropic community partner since 1922 and proud supporter of numerous community organizations. More information at smithville.com. And School of Public Health Bloomington, public health reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life publichealth.indiana.edu. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with Becca Costello from WFIU. We're going to talk about the impact of digital technology on education and cognitive development today, and what can be done to ensure that students are getting the most out of digital educational media. We have three guests, two are with us in the studio, and one is joining us by phone. Kurt Bonk is here in the studio. He's a professor in instructional systems technology in the IU School of Education. And Eric Wiedenauer is here. He is the, a research associate at IU who develops mathematics educational software for middle school age students. Also joining us by phone is Shannon Riley Ayers, an associate professor or research professor at the National Institute for Early Education Research located at Rutgers University. Thank you all for joining us today. If you want to join the program, you can give us a call at, oh, you can't give us a call today. I'm sorry, we're in a different studio and uh, you're gonna have to contact us on Twitter at Noon Edition, but you certainly can send us a question or send us a comment on Twitter at Noon Edition. Well, hey, thank you all for being here today. Becca, good to be back with you. Good to see you, Bob. And, and Kurt, I want to start with you and uh, some of your, you know, we talked uh, in the open and in the open before the news about how we sort of have these two issues going on about the impact of digital technology on on students, on education, and on cognitive development. Can you sort of, you know, Tell us, give us a, a sense of, you know, the, the benefits, and do you see the, a downside to all the new technologies uh, working with students today? You know, we're going to have both. We're always going to have both. And what we have to do is find the balance, first of all, uh, in one's life and in one's, you know, academic engagements. The benefits, I think, outweigh the costs, and that is because we're entering an age where it's not just information that's available for us to learn the basic facts, which is really what's been highlighted recently here in the state of Indiana with some new programs. We do want those basic facts for young kids coming into school. But at the same time, we've got some new opportunities for kids to create content, explore content, uh, to take some academic risks, if you will, make some experiments happen, chemistry experiments, whatever it happens to be and have some failures early on in life and overcome them and, and refine and advance. So we've got opportunities for being creative and also logical, logical thinking skills, manipulating information, uh, offloading some things to the internet so you can you know, take advantage of the storage capacity that's there and the resources and information that's all around you and at the same time create something you can share with an audience well beyond your classroom, beyond your teacher with the global partners all around the world. And this can start young. And projects that kids do today are no longer one-off things shot in a bin, you know, that a teacher reads and you discard. There's something that can be saved and refined and communities can happen from them. So it's, these are exciting times, but we have to find where those things are. We have to find ways to motivate and engage youth uh, today with these technologies 
and not just use them as drill tools, which is nothing wrong with that, but we have to find the balance and push towards the other side, push towards the creative exploration side. Well, Eric, you've, uh, you know, you're a research associate, but you're also an entrepreneur. And I, I was looking at some stuff online today about graspable math. And mm-hmm. could you talk a little bit about that and you know, how you got involved with that? Mm-hmm. So I came from Germany uh, with a computer science PhD here to IU Bloomington and uh, met with Robert Goldstone and David Landy here, which are two professors in psychology. And what they've been, especially David Landy, has been working on was um, to research how people can make sense of formal systems like, um, like algebra notation in mathematics, which seems to be something very abstract and something which our brains couldn't really evolve to handle well because like mathematics on the evolutionary timescale is very, very recent, right? And still we are able to do it. So this research has been looking into how we can, how we can reuse our brains to, um, to, to, um, to tackle these new tasks in, in mathematics and make sense of this. And um, it turns out that um, we can, we, we can actually use these findings and implement them into a system um, and then actually test it out with, with people in the lab and also bring it to classrooms. And this is what I've been working on since. So what we've been doing is turning algebraic notation as it is uh, static on a, on a paper and how it's usually done and bring this into the digital space where it can be interactive and people can actually like um, get immediate feedback on what they are doing, make it more approachable, more intuitive to learn. And what's, what, what age of students are you working with? Mm-hmm. So we're uh, mostly targeting middle school students, like the time where really um, algebra starts, where often you also see a kind of uh, dip in engagement where people like, for a lot of students, well, arithmetic still made a lot of sense, but suddenly you introduce these variables and so on. And um, so, that is a, a tough point for many students uh, in the U.S. Uh, so, so that is our main target right now. But uh, it scales uh, up to high school. We have in uh, Indianapolis um, there is um, a tutoring center um, for um, high sc- uh, for for uh, college level algebra. So uh, we we uh, we are using Raspel Math there. We are also looking at elementary school actually. Mm-hmm. I want to bring Shannon Riley Ayers into our conversation. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Sure, happy to be here. All right, so you you work in early childhood education. Uh, that's where your career has been. And so, you know, we've, we've talked sort of in general terms, we've talked about uh, these middle school and high school students. So, you know, what are the, the pluses and minuses when you're talking about really um, young children in, in early childhood education? Sure, so it's different for the young learner. So our pediatricians recommend avoiding media use for children 18 months or younger. And then as we move into the preschool years, ages two to five or so, the recommendation is you know, an hour or less per day, and that parents should have a role in co-viewing the media with the children and should be high quality. So that can be an online book that they're reading to discuss. It could be a high-quality PBS program where they're learning and building background knowledge around animals or concepts. Um, But it it should never replace for the young learner the adult role. So in young learners, um, oral language is critical to develop. And, um, you know, it's only developed through high-quality conversations, high-quality literature, print-rich environments, building vocabulary, building that background knowledge. And I think without the adult playing a role alongside of the media, we tend to fall down on those areas. Shannon, I'm wondering if you can uh, explain a little bit, too, uh, you know, when we talk about screen time, a lot of times I think we're thinking about parents working with their young children. But what are some of the things that educational institutions are doing to bring digital technology into the classroom? Um, Like, for example, I know Upstart is an online preschool program that Indiana is piloting this year. Can you talk a little bit about that and maybe some other programs that educational institutions are, are using? 
Um, sure, it's somewhat limited. Um, you know, when we think about young learners, we want them to have the hands-on materials, the manipulation, the creativity, the problem-solving, the interaction with their peers. So I generally see that those um, media programs are used for more didactic learning. So it may be an ABC song or practicing letters or sounds or simple math concepts. Um, rather than having that as the focus, that can be used well as an add-on um, and generally short periods of time. So we know that many children have access to media at home and if we're trying to keep the time to one hour or less per day, we need to be conservative in the classroom. Um, and again, it shouldn't replace those rich conversations and rich interactions that the children are having, not only with the adults in the classroom, but with their peers. If I could follow up on, on Becca's question, because I think this was, and I don't, I, I don't mean to embroil you on Indiana politics, Shannon, but uh, you know, we, we've had a, a lengthy debates in Indiana about, about preschool and preschool funding. Indiana was late to the table on preschool funding. I think anybody would agree with that. And this year, the governor um, got through uh, you know $20 million for preschool funding, but $1 million of it is going to this Upstart program that, that Becca talked about. Um, you know, again, in a, in a, I guess a, asking the question in a little bit different way, I mean, is, is this a good use of taxpayer money to try to, to push, uh, you know, an online preschool program for students that, you know, might be homeschooled or students who, who don't have access to a high quality, uh, you know, for, um, level four preschool in their general vicinity? Well, that, that's a, a interesting question there, and I think there's a couple of ways to look at it. Um, one is, as you said, if a child does not have access to high-quality care and education, can an online program in a short time increase some skills? And that's likely. So skills like alphabet recognition and other somewhat narrow skills can be developed quickly through repetition and online programs such as that. But they can also be developed through quality interactions with the adult who is in their life, so whether that's a parent or a family child caregiver. So we've seen a lot of success with two-generation approaches for those children who may not have access or who are home with their families um, so that we are teaching the parents or the caregivers how to read a story and have a discussion about it, how to point out different learning opportunities, even at the grocery store where we're talking about recipes and different foods and pointing out letters on boxes of cereal. Uh, so there are other ways to support through, um, you know, various avenues, uh, not necessarily always the media. Good. Yep. Bob, if I might just add in here, uh, Shannon makes a really good point in that there are a lot of these programs out there. Um, that are just now emerging. Uh, and there's venture capital across all spans of education, all sectors of education. The VC has just exploded here. And so we're not going to see this decrease. This issue is not going to decrease. So as she said, this is a critical question to be asking. Uh, and so what we see, though, happening is an offloading of some of these activities to the home life, to the informal side of things. Informal learning is exploding at the same time. 80 to 90% of learning is informal, done outside of schools. And so to create or mandate programs like this have to have serious discussions and questions because you run into this dichotomy between the, what I call the R words, regimentation, rules, and requirements, and you're gearing these kids up with this 15 minutes of time a day, it's a no requirement. It, it, it's a, it regimentates them. There's nothing wrong with that alone, but we need the C words. And these programs can build self-confidence, can build self-concept, but maybe they don't go far enough in giving a sense of creativity. And some other C words, connectedness, connecting to their peers, as I mentioned earlier, their global partners around the world. Uh, and so we need both. We need the balance between the R words, learning how to function in the school and, how to, and learning those basic facts, whether math facts or vocabulary uh, uh, alphabet issues, 
Uh, at the same time, we need the problem solving, as Shannon said. We need the collaboration skills. We need the creativity skills. So has to be some kind of balance. So can the state of Indiana get a program that does both? Mm-hmm. Uh, 15 minutes a day of exploration or, 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 or you know, um, creativity and, and design. And then some time where you're learning those basic facts early on. Um, and, and do we need it? Can we do this at home? I want to follow up on that because, you know, you said something that I guess made my eyes get really big when you talked about, did you say 80% of learning goes on in an informal setting, so outside the school? So if you could comment on that and then, you know, Shannon or, or Eric, if you want to follow up on, on any of these points, please do. You know, kids are designing art today uh, in middle school. Middle school is a prime area where metacognitive skills are, are starting to advance and why we need somewhat what Eric and others are doing. Uh, and so early on, kids are creating their own YouTube-like videos or their artwork or their blogging uh, or their journaling uh, or creating newspapers for their schools or podcasting, uh, pl- learning to play an instrument. My son learned how to play guitar online when he was a high school student here in, in Bloomington, uh, Bloomington South. Uh, and, you know, photography and all sorts of skills are being learned online today. And you can look them up in all sorts of places online if you want to learn how to do something or wonder how to is a website where you can learn that, how to, how to you know, eventually create a resume and apply for jobs. You can learn A to Z online today, um, how to cook. Uh, and so, you know, uh, people looking for what to do tonight for dinner, they're, you know, MasterChef and all these other sites are out there for informal learning. So, and this is not decreasing anytime soon. Uh, but what we need to do is understand it better. What we need to do is understand the self-directedness that's happening out there and how to build self-directed learning skills in students. Because I think only about a quarter of our student population is self-directed to be honest. And to take advantage of the resources that are out there, we're going to need to increase that and, and, and facilitate and nurture those self-directed learning skills, but also the meta-reflection skills that Eric's trying to build, I'm sure, in his program as well. Yeah. Eric, thoughts? Mm-hmm. Yes. So um, you talked earlier about that there's a lot of drill tools which get at very narrow skills and can be effective for that. And I see this a lot in the landscape of uh, math learning apps. And what um, what I think is important to, to also have and explore more is apps which are more open-ended, which uh, actually get at problem solving, which let students um, explore like how to apply things and go down different ways and see how it goes. Thereby also like enabling interesting kind of classroom conversations. And um, so... One problem we are focusing on in algebra is that it's a field where you really need currently, you really need to know the rules before you can go and apply or explore, right? It's like chess. If you don't know, if you don't play by a rule, like imagine a, a cat playing chess, um, like it won't learn much about the game, like, or, or if you don't have the rules for chess down, you can't learn much about the strategy of the game. And that's, that's a little different from, let's say, learning English or li- literature, where you can write a good story with bad spelling. It's, it's different in algebra. So that is a point where I think technology can come in and help students be able to do the application, do the exploration before they master the rules. And that, that can be much more motivating then, than having to like drill until you're really, really good on the rules before you can move on. To, to application. But remember that the venture capitalists out there are really good at selling us on the basic skills that can be learned from technology. It's been that way for decades. And my master's thesis a long time ago was looking at you know, convergent and divergent software back in the late 1980s. And there's a plethora of them of tools out there for that. And it's only going to, as I said, increase. And so it's easy for states to look at the data that comes from the increase in basic math facts or reading skills and say this is what we need to do when, in fact, we need more than that um, to, to be a, a global citizen in today's world. It's, it's important, and maybe we should fund it here in the state, but we should also look at other pro- programs that build the other skills that both Shannon and Eric are talking about. I want to remind our uh, listeners that uh, you, we're all online today. I mean, you can't you can't give us a call. You can't pick up your phone and call us today because we're in a new studio. Don't have that access available. We hope to have it back next week. But you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition if you have a question or a comment. 
Um, so I, I want to go back to these studies that we mentioned at the beginning of the show, um, a couple of somewhat recent studies looking at uh, screen time in toddlers um, and, and a couple of, and, and granted, these are very preliminary studies with not a lot of confirmation yet, but saying that, you know, a certain amount of screen time uh, is can be connected to speech delays and, and not getting as much sleep as, as peers who are not having screen time. I'm wondering, I think, Shannon, you can probably address this. Does that translate to screen time in the classroom? Or is this more of a, you know, sort of undirected screen time that's taking place at home? Well, I think screen time is screen time in many ways. Um, you know, as we, my colleagues on the panel so eloquently talked about the whole child. So this idea that, you know, they're on the screen time, they're doing these didactic learning, we're not getting at the important components that will help them become, you know, well learner good learners going forward so things like engagement and persistence and attention and self-regulation um, and even gross motor and fine motor so in the classroom whether it's directed or, or not it's still replacing opportunities for those skills as well so whether it's at home or in the classroom it's taking the place of opportunities to practice these other components that make a child a well-rounded learner and citizen in our in our world here. Kurt, you, you look like you might want to respond to that. Well, she's right in that screen time is all around us, pervasive. But, but what I've been reading is a screen is not a screen is not a screen. It's not the same as the TV age. And so there's more manipulation happening. There's more interaction and hopefully more engagement. Um, now, early on, do we have the simulations and the animations and all sorts of interactivities that we see in the middle school age and the high school ages and, and, uh, and beyond? Um, maybe that's the difference that, that, that we would see. We still see some of the basic facts being uh, emphasized early on. Uh, again, that's important to have that base, but it's also important to have the balance. Let me just throw out one uh, quick little factoid that came to mind as we were chatting again about venture capital and money in this area. When I was in China two years ago, they went in 2014 from 600 educational technology companies in the whole country to 2015 having over 1,200. Massive amounts of money being paid in, into, pushed into this area, especially in the area of artificial intelligence and trying to understand where students need to go and create personalized learning paths for them, which is maybe going to make a huge impact in middle school math and high school math. Not so sure early on, but we're moving into an, an area today trying to customize and personalize learning, which I believe the program that's being implemented here in Indiana, the Upstart program, talks about. I've not seen Upstart, so I don't know the degree to which it is, in fact, personalized. But if it is, it's in line with what we're seeing happening in other sectors and in, in other places around the world. We're going to have to take a short break. I think we've hit about halfway in the program. So we're talking about uh, the use of technology and education from uh, early learning for students up through middle school and high school. If uh, you want to join us today, you have to do it through Twitter. At Noon Edition is uh, where you can find us. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com, and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiunews.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each weekday afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org.
Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with Becca Costello from WFIU. And today we're talking about digital media and technology and how they're being used in the educational systems around the country and the world. Kurt Bonk is here with us. He's a professor of instructional systems technology in the IU School of Education. Eric Wiedenauer is here. He's a research associate and an ed tech entrepreneur. And Shannon Riley Ayers has joined us, and she is an associate research professor at the National Institute for Early Education Research located at Rutgers University. You can only contact us today through Twitter, at Noon Edition, if you want to join the program. Becca? So I want to ask, Kurt, you've mentioned uh, just before the break um, some of the, the increase in educational technology companies in China, I believe you said. And, you know, I know when we talk about education, there's always sort of this conversation how do how does the US compare to other countries you know so I'm wondering how what are other countries doing um, when it comes to educational technology is this something that we're pretty comparable and any any of our guests here I think could address this you know we've lacked leadership for a long time in the field of educational technology more recently national reports have come out that have been guideposts and been better suited to today's age than what we did have in the past. But when I've done national studies and international studies, we definitely were not among the leader. Uh, it, it, it's so diffuse in this country. So many states have different initiatives going on, whether it's ebook projects in the state of California uh, or tutoring programs in the state of New Jersey. Uh, but when I go to Korea, for instance, it's part of the national agenda. You see heavy reports coming out uh, on robotics, on uh, test prep, language learning in particular. Uh, they're using robots to teach English now instead of bringing kids over from the U.S. that graduate from college. <laughs> uh, when I was in China, again, their te test prep and language learning and mobile learning and mobile gaming. Uh, I was in Singapore two months ago, and Singapore has well, this is a city-state national reports on mobile learning, gaming, and problem-based learning. Uh, they have a huge mobile learning initiative in the elementary and middle school and high school level that I don't see as pervasive here as they did there. And I, I was just in Thailand where they do a lot with tablet technologies, which we also see happening here right in the city of Bloomington, Indiana here, where we are, uh, the tablet programs in the schools. Um, so I saw some similarities between what was going on in Thailand and, uh, and here. But in other places, of course, many people are trying to catch up in the language learning areas. We also see a lot of um, companies emerging in the language learning space, whether it's Duolingo uh, or, or other entities. You see Rosetta, many people use Rosetta Stone, but um, there, there's a lot happening there in that language learning space. Uh, Eric might be able to talk about Germany or parts of Europe. Sure, yeah. So. Um I've mostly focused on the U.S. actually, and I would agree that it's a rather, it's a little fragmented maybe in terms of like which schools or school districts or state have like uh, which ratio, which kind of technology available in the classrooms. Um, certainly the whole world is moving towards integrating more technology in the classrooms, uh, not surprisingly. Um, so this is, I mean, I haven't actually looked at Germany a lot. When I was still there in school like 20 years ago, we certainly didn't have uh, um, a lot of uh, computer or, or digital technology in, in the classrooms. But here um, in the US now, I mean, so in I would say in virtually all classrooms, you have kind of like um, possibility to, to project things and have things on a computer to, to engage kids that way, right? And that's a way where... Um, so I was thinking about this, like um, this, this like heavy use of technology where where kids use it to do things. But it's there's also things which are now possible that teachers can do easily. And like some people talked about this at the uh, uh, annual conference of the NCTM, the National uh, Council for Teaching Mathematics, which I found very interesting. So teachers can now just go out and snap a photo with their smartphone, and on the same day bring this in class and start a discussion around this. That uh, that ties back to like bringing informal learning or learning outside the classrooms back into the classrooms. So that's one kind of um, use of technology, uh, like one benefit of technology we, we have now. Mm -hmm. 
Shannon, I want to ask you, um, and I'm going to warn you in advance, this is not going to be a, a very uh, coherent question. It's more of a topic and a thought that I'd like to get your reaction to. But, you know, we're talking a lot about technology. And, and you know, here in uh, our community, in Bloomington, in the state of Indiana, as I said before, preschool and early childhood education has been a big issue. There's a summit here actually next week. The state summit on early childhood education is going to be in Bloomington on, on Monday. Um, and... You know, we talk a lot about high-quality early childhood education and the importance of high-quality early childhood education. And I guess I'd like for you to sort of react to, you know, what makes a high-quality early childhood experience and, you know, where does technology fit into that? Yeah, so I think Eric hit the nail on the head when he talked about how teachers are using technology. And I think we have not advanced enough to support teachers how to, choose, how to use it well in the classroom, especially early ages. When I think about a high-quality preschool classroom, it is one where children have opportunities to self-direct their learning, as Kurt had talked about, the critical importance of that, where students are engaged actively in rich conversations and dialogue where a teacher and other adults in the classroom are supporting their vocabulary development and building their background knowledge, where they have rich hands-on experiences. So they are manipulating various science objects like seashells or maple leaves or other objects that are found out in nature, where teachers are working with students not only in whole group for a short amount of time, but also providing small group and one-on-one support as children explore the, explore the classroom and really play. And I think that's an important component that we can't forget for our young learners, how much they glean from play activity. And we know that play at home, especially outdoor play where we work on growth motor skills, uh, has decreased significantly in the past 20 years. We have a, a question that came in uh, by Twitter, and Shannon, it's along the same lines here. Um, it, says, it says quality of pre-K depends on interaction. How does technology affect that? So, uh, yeah, and, and teacher-child and inter- teacher interaction and even child-to-peer interaction is important. And technology can either advance that or hinder that. When I'm in a classroom and I see that for you know 30 minutes every child has their own iPad and they're working individually, I don't see that as a good use of technology for four or five-year-olds. When I have a teacher who is in a place where they can't go on a field trip or a class trip to explore something, but the children have this great interest in Mount McKinley or the Atlantic Ocean, and she can pull up the a online field trip or some videos or photos on a smart board that shows this that makes a difference okay google cardboard does that as well those virtual expeditions today and this week maybe last week they announced an expansion of their expedition uh, app if you will and so kids are exploring reenactments of uh, gettysburg or whatever on their with their phones that they bring into into class mm-hmm. uh, i'll add a study i just thought of that i did uh, several years ago looking at wikis in pre-k through grade six and teachers used them in many different ways. Uh, they use them to help parents understand what's happening in the schools um, with announcements. But what they found really interesting was the constructivistic kinds of uses of these tools. So combining what Shannon said, going out and play or collecting leaves and taking pictures of them and then putting them into a wiki and doing some analysis with them or writing digital stories and sharing them with their grandparents in India who add to the story and uh, it becomes an interactive family experience. And when we ask the question, um, is this a revolution in education? 80% of them, 80% of the teachers in the survey said yes. They already, uh, we asked, will it be a revolution uh, in the future? They said, no, it already is today. This revolution's happening now. And many teachers are able to take advantage of that. And if they can find that balance again between these technologies that build in the basics and the act of learning. I mean, we see this happening all across the spectrum, something a term called blended learning, where we use technology to supplement and engage and activate 
at the same time, we have the face-to-face experiences with our peers, as Shannon said, or teachers or experts coming in from around the world. Um, you know, this is an exciting time to be in education, but we have, it's difficult to figure out how to take advantage of it, and we need better frameworks and models for that. That's what we need. I want to come back to Indiana briefly. Um, Shannon, you work for the National Institute for Early Education Research, um, an organization that recently ranked Indiana as one of the poorest states for pre-K access and funding. And Bob mentioned earlier, it's been a, a big topic in Indiana for several years, especially this year, I think, in the legislative session. So, Shannon, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about, you know, what are the factors that went into ranking Indiana so low? And then, you know, can technology be part of the solution for improving Indiana's early learning um, educational opportunities? Well, for uh, the yearbook, which is the publication that takes a look at the programs that are offered to preschool age children across the country, There are several benchmarks, and you can find those on our website at NEER, N-I-E-E-R, dot org. Um, And this year we have uh, changed those a little bit to really get at what a high-quality program would need. So things like uh, teachers who have a bachelor's degree and some training in in pre-K in particular, where we have teachers and assistant teachers that have professional learning opportunities and ongoing support in the classroom. We look for ratio from staff to child. We look at maximum class size. We look at supports outside of the classroom, such as vision and hearing and health screenings and such. Um, And previously, we had looked at meals and whether um, we have some classroom observations or improvement plans uh, going forward as site visits to examine the quality and engage in a continuous improvement cycle to continue to support the high quality program in increasing in both access as well as quality. So um, technology is not a piece that is looked at specifically here, but I think it would come into play in the monitoring or the continuous improvement system that we hope that states would have in place to examine their programs. So that could be a component to take a look at the access that the child has to technology as well as the use in the classroom. Can, or, can I add yeah, to that sure. just briefly? Sure. I've been here 25 years at, in Bloomington here in Indiana, and I had a project 20 years ago called the Ticket Project for Technology Integration for Teachers in Rural, Southern, and Central Indiana, heavily funded in this state. Um, and t- schools are getting $100,000 grants. 30% of that had to be spent for teacher training. And it was wonderful. The changes happening in the schools that we saw over a year that we worked with uh, schools in, in cohorts in that project, Dr. Lee Eamon and I uh, worked on that project for five years, were amazing, just amazing. And they'd go from nervous, almost tears in their eyes the first week, to being state leaders. Uh, and sharing not only in their local districts. And, you know, we were in Salem, Indiana, and uh, Seymour, and Spencer, and, you know, Greene County, and way down in Corridon. Um, We were all over in in South Central. And then all of a sudden that money dried up. And this is a problem I've seen in the state of Indiana, is that K-12 education is an up-and-down cycle in terms of funding. And yet the state budget compared to other states in in the Midwest and all around is pretty stable. I mean, we haven't had the ups and downs overall uh, economically. We're, you know, knock on wood. Uh, Maybe it's a conservative state that we're in. But uh, I wish K-12 funding would be as stable uh, and um, progressive uh, as what we see happening at the higher ed level. I mean, IU is known for being, it was the most wired university in the in the country and then it became the most unwired and purdue and depaul and ball state at the higher ed level there's amazing things happening the k-12 level it's been up and down you'll see things funded you'll see cyber schools get funded one year and then all of a sudden that that new law is rescinded because we see some problems in ohio or some problems in michigan all of a sudden our lawmakers get nervous 
Uh, I, I, I'd like to see more attention focused at the K-12 level and, and, and better reports uh, coming out that address the needs of the teachers and, 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 and students in the state because uh, the possibilities are there, and I've seen it. I've seen people dramatic, make dramatic differences in the smallest schools in this state, and it's possible, and maybe it's going to happen again, and maybe this is what we're seeing starting to happen here. So, you know, I've been listening to a lot of this thinking that, you know, you said the revolution is already here. I mean, we're, we're involved in all this change in education, and I, and I wonder, and I, you know, any of you can take this, but, you know, in the, in the uh, political system that we're in, you know, can political leaders, policy leaders from the federal level down through the state legislatures, down through school boards even – it seems like it might be very difficult for them to keep up with all this change going on and to make the right choices on this, particularly with the number. You know, how do they evaluate? How do they how do they keep from a paralysis in trying to figure out what's right for going forward with their students? Anyone want to give me some sense of what they should do? Eric, I'm gonna I'm calling on you. You're you're sort of shrugging. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think it's a it's a good question. It's a tough problem. Um, I'd actually like to hear my fellow uh, panelists uh, mm -hmm. say something about oh, it. You know, I'm, Shannon, I'm sure you want to jump in here too, but when you have the Khan Academy, that's, if you haven't seen the Khan Academy, you know, Salman Khan created and Bill Gates gave him $10 million or how much money of funding to create assessments around it. These are shared online videos to teach maths and English and finance and all sorts of things. Um, originally geared at the high school level, but it's moved up and down um, both directions. Uh, when you see that type of thing there, you, you start saying to yourself, what should we be funding if this stuff exists out there? And so we, what we see in schools happening today is a notion of flipping the classroom. And so students might watch a shared online video that the teacher creates or that's pre-created by the publishers or that someone else like the Khan Academy is created or whatever it is. Um, and then kids come into class to discuss it and do activities around it, problem solving and problem-based learning and all sorts of things that are at a higher level. That's one direction that things are happening, especially at the high school level uh, and middle school level and now the college level, not so much the pre-K level yet, um, and maybe it shouldn't. Uh, but politicians and educators and so forth will look at such opportunities and say, do we need to make additional inroads here or do we need to mine the best of what's out there and create models and frameworks for how to use it and guidelines for flipping the classroom or whatever the next thing is. Flipping is the current, I don't know if you've heard the term or not, but, but it is something that's very uh, popular today. And then we see these massive open online courses coming out for getting kids ready for college uh, and taking the ACT and the SATs. And that the, the I've seen some data recently of improvement of test scores by 150 points from that, uh, or more. And so it is a difficult time when you have so many of these different opportunities in front of us, whether it is um, test prep or language learning or shared online video or online learning courses or animations and simulations. That's why I said we need frameworks and models and guidelines, and that's where the focus should be, I think. I'm curious to hear what Shannon says about younger ages. Yeah, so I think you've, you've nailed it there in terms of it needs to be a focus on the structures or the availability of the structures. And for young learners, a focus on the teacher. So when we're thinking about the teacher in the classroom, um, you know, whether it's flipped classroom or whether it's using an, a different online tool or a different newly developed media sensation, we, we need to think about teaching the teachers how to use these tools as tools. I've seen oftentimes where the technology becomes the lesson rather than be the tool to teach the content and to communicate and explore the content with the students. And I think that's a critical component when we think about investing. Where do we want to invest? Do we want to invest in the newest, latest technology? Or do we need to invest in working with the teachers on how to use this new and upcoming, because we, we need to almost teach for what we don't even know will be developed in the next 10 years. 
And I think investing in the teacher is the way to go there. And those sustainable models of teacher development need to be developed as well so that if they do have a program like we had with the ticket program where 30% of their, their money coming in for capital was being spent on teacher training, that you create cohorts that then train the next group coming in the schools so it, it, it expands and continues. Uh, and there's, there's multiple benefits. The benefits multiply. So we've, we've talked a lot about using technology um, in the classroom, and it sounds like there needs to be emphasis on teachers using it as a tool, but really, you know, not replacing a teacher. So going back to Upstart, it, it seems like that's exactly what this program is, you know, and this is the, the online preschool program. It's implemented in a few states already, and Indiana is piloting it this year, putting some money towards it. And, you know, just in case you don't know, it, my understanding is that basically it's done at home uh, 15 minutes a day, five days a week, and it's exclusively online with no sort of trained educational professional involved in person. So, you know, getting some feedback on that, it sounds like that's not the kind of effective model that we've been talking about here today. Is it? Is there a way for that to be effective? Should, I think that that can be... Yeah, yeah go ahead. I, I think that that can be a component to something that's effective. I don't think it can replace a high-quality experience uh, either at home or at a center. Um, one thing it surely doesn't address is childcare needs. So we need to think about access to high-quality early education in response to some childcare needs that our families are having at this point. We also know that sometimes the um, media or the online instruction can be responsive. So depending on what the child pushes, they get a different question or a different activity. But that's only responsive to what the child types in or clicks on or drags with the mouse. It's not responsive to the whole child. So maybe the child accidentally hit that button and now they're down a path where they don't necessarily need to go. Or perhaps that child is having a heck of a day and decides to just bang on those keys in response to being frustrated. And lo and behold, they have a whole new path for that student. So when we have a teacher, she can be responsive to the, all the needs of the child and can kind of think about the child on a overall basis rather than just on the 15 minutes. We call our young learners unreliable. Um, you know, one day they seem to know something, the next day they're struggling with it. Um, their learning has been shown to be quite erratic. They have big boosts in learning and understanding. They have flat lines at certain points. So all of that nuance needs to be taken into consideration when planning the academic or the social-emotional development of the child. There has to be a human in the loop and in some, some way, shape, or form. Uh, those listening out there should take a look at uh, an award-winning TED Talk from Sugata Mitra, and he's got about three or four of them. But uh, just type in Sugata, S-U-G-A-T-A, um, Mitra, M-I-T-R-A. Uh, he had a project called the Hole in the Wall Project in India where kids uh, in Delhi uh, and Mumbai and other places had a computer in the slums of uh, areas of, of those cities, and they taught each other how to use the technology without knowing English. And later he developed something called the Granny Cam, grandmothers coming in, retired teachers in the U.K. gave up an hour a week of their time to tutor kids and give them feedback. Uh, but it was the peer mentoring the teacher, retired teacher mentoring, and now we see some programs in U.S. between older people in nursing homes in the U.S. and kids in Brazil learning English language online, having someone to talk to. You need that connection to someone. Uh, to, yeah, you're learning English or you're learning your maths, but you need to have somebody to give you some feedback and encouragement and some gentle nudging and some corrective feedback as well. And those opportunities are exploding here with uh, tools like the Expert Cafe and other things. And, and I think this will increase at the K-12 level. Already these online tutoring programs that are available to help uh, kids. And we need to understand those better, just like we need to understand self-directed learning better. We need to understand these tutoring systems better. So many threads to pull. Um, Eric, I, I want to I wanna ask you about, you know, when you're developing a course and when you're working on this mathematics, um, how much, you know, what's, what's your effort uh, toward making sure that, that other people will be able to teach this easily? Mm -hmm. 
So I, uh, I first want to say I absolutely agree that it is uh, really important to keep the human in the loop. So um, all what we do is, um, we, so what we're trying to do is build a tool which will actually help have more conversations and better conversations between teachers and between students and peers about uh, these mathematic concepts. And uh, part of this can happen in the classroom where um, you might be able to uh, immediately have a look at student work, bring it up compared to other students. Um, and it can uh, also, of course, happen when remotely connecting people in this kind of um, tutoring situations. Um, uh, which I think, yeah, as um, as was just said, like can can bring people together, tutors and tutories together, which which normally couldn't, and really give a powerful second access to these to these uh, topics. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, in in pulling that string, it brings to mind the idea that uh, I know at local school corporations, or at least I've certainly seen it here, there's always a debate about professional development. And it sounds like what we're talking, part of what we're talking about today is that if these changes, these technological changes are going to occur in a successful way, there's gonna to have to be a lot of professional development investment in teachers from the preschool level all the way up through probably higher education. Reaction? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the word learning is changing, and parents have to start realizing that uh, to become a participant in this. And so it's not just the training of teachers, but the training of parents in what's available and what might, what's possible. Now, learning today has become more visual. It's become more blended. It's become more online. Uh, it's become more ubiquitous. It's wrapped around us at all times with, the, with those of us that carry a mobile on us anyhow. And I've written a paper where uh, there's 30 ways that learning's changing. If anyone wants to read it, it's a free online paper at publicationshare.com. You have to believe in the power of sharing. So it's a, it's a recent thing and all my free and open access articles are, including a free book on how to teach with technologies is up there as well at, uh, uh, at Publication Share, and you can go directly at techvariety.com, T-E-C, variety. Mm -hmm. There's 100 ways in that book on how to motivate and how to teach with technology and a framework, and that's what we need, our frameworks to teach from. I've developed a couple of them, and I think it gives teachers more confidence uh, when something new comes along in their department heads or deans or parents or even the kids in the classroom are ex exploring and pushing to use it they can have a framework to work from mm -hmm. uh, and frameworks that, that deal with the diverse learners that are coming into our classrooms today. And there's going to be even more diverse than ever before. So yes, teacher training is part of that, but the frameworks that can help those teachers feel confident, not just in 2017, but the technology of 2020 and 2025 and beyond. All right. We have run out of time. I want to thank our guest today, Kurt Bunk from IU and Eric Wiedenauer from IU as well, and Shannon Riley Ayers, from, who joined us from Rutgers University today. For Becca Costello and Michael Pashkash, uh, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times, a podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington. Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. Publichealth.indiana.edu. And Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company. Fiber Internet, HD, and digital IPTV in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.